mineral soil does intrinsically have certain minerals in it, like, like the, um, the physical structure, the chemical makeup of, of mineral soils might be potassium and silicon and different things like that. But uh, some of the key nutrients um, are not naturally there, like nitrogen. That has to come from an external source. And uh, because that process is happening continually, you always have some nitrogen in the soil. But on the other hand, um, plant-based, plant-based soils like, like um, compost, for example, they came from plants, and plants always have to have nitrogen in them. So you take um, even about the worst thing you can get, which is sawdust, has a carbon-nitrogen ratio of 300 to 1, which means that, that there's, a, there's a roughly a third of a percent nitrogen in, uh, in there. Unfortunately, that is not available for a long, long time. But um, we, use, we use, in our media, we add um, plants as our food source. We don't use any manures or synthetic fertilizers because we're certified organic and veganic. So we might use alfalfa pellets, um, bean meal, peanut meal. Um, what else have we used? Yeah, we're, we're uh, just getting a truckload of sunflower seeds. We're going to be sunflower seed meal. Um, these, these, um, these components are excellent sources of, of fertility and, um, and as, as you'll see um, this afternoon when I present our journey of going to certified organic and veganic, um, we, we had a lot of apprehension about how well we could provide fertility. When we got into this veganic stuff some years back, um, we were one of the early adopters of veganic agriculture in North America. And um, so we did not know how well it was going to work. But I will tell you this, we did not know how easy it was to make it work. So we've been, while there's, while there's certainly challenges, there's challenges to all kinds of things, we found it to be a relatively simple process to get the amount of nutrients that we need. And uh, I don't consider myself an expert in that, but we certainly have, we certainly have some experience. What about cottonseed meal? Cottonseed meal works well, too, as long as you can make sure that it's, from my opinion, as long as you can make sure that it's non-GMO. Um, I am, I'm kind of an opinionated person when it comes to genetically modified organisms. So, on to propagation. Um, it's interesting, this statement from Adventist Home, I didn't know till I started getting into researching some of this stuff, I didn't know how specific uh, inspiration was on uh, some of these actual subjects of, um, of um, gardening if you know what you're looking for. Okay, she says, no one can succeed in agriculture or gardening. Now again, we have this blanket statement in relation to success. No one can succeed. That's, that's um, um, pretty, pretty generic. 
pretty, pretty uh, across the board, without attention to the laws involved. So that implies that if you are, are going to succeed, what? You have to pay attention. Now there's a character trait called attention to detail. The reason why agriculture is so good at character development isn't because you have to work so hard. It's because you have to pay such careful attention to detail. And you aren't going to get it right the first time. And so you have to have perseverance and, uh, and some of these things to keep, to keep moving forward. So she says, no one can succeed in agriculture or gardening without attention to the laws involved. The special needs of every variety of plant must be studied. That implies there's going to have to be some close observation and maybe even some researching. Different varieties require different soils and cultivation. And compliance with the laws governing each is the condition, not one of the conditions, the condition of success. So if you aren't succeeding, it isn't because of agriculture, it's because of me. I am not complying with the laws governing the crops that I'm growing. Now, none of us like to see things that reveal our defects of character. And, and we would much prefer to be in ignorance and to have everybody around us tell us we're really nice people, and we'd rather have our plants tell us we're really nice people too. But plants don't care about my feelings. And so God likes to use them to teach lessons to me. Um, and so, continuing, notice this, I highlighted it, the attention required in transplanting that not even a root fiber shall be misplaced or crowded. When you transplant, do you pay attention to make sure that your root fibers are not being misplaced or crowded? Now I'm going to before I let you off the hook on that one, because, um, like I said, we do this every week, and so um, um, the results testify to the work done. So when I see problems, I'm supposed to open my eyes and admit that I have a problem, which I don't like to do. But if you go back here, it says that compliance with the laws is the condition of success. So if I am not being not being careful with my transplanting, I am not going to have the success that I could have. The care of the young plants, the pruning and watering, the shielding from frost at night and sun by day, keeping out weed, disease, and insect pests. Now I'm going to stop right there. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, whenever it was that she wrote that, what options did they have at that time to keep out the frost by night and the sun by day? I've rocked my head on that one. That's really only protected agriculture, which they had a little bit of it back then, but that's really greenhouses. So she says that, um, that that's one of the things that she's saying we need to do. And, um, and keeping out insect pests, keeping out weeds and disease, the training and arranging not only teach important lessons, but the work in itself is a means of development in cultivating care, carefulness, patience, attention to detail, obedience to law, it imparts a most essential training. 
I consider that to be pretty potent, most essential. Essential is essential by itself. But when you add most essential, that kind of is a double whammy. You better make sure that you're getting that one, uh, is what I think God's saying there. So, but I wanted to highlight this, this thing here about uh, the specific attributes of transplanting and, and, and so on. Um, now, when it comes to growing seedlings, and yes, we start our, our plants from seed ourselves. And um, in our, and I'll just interject that since I mentioned it, we save our tomato seeds and a few other seeds um, because of economics. Uh, greenhouse crops are... Um, highly specialized plants. They are not like anything that you would buy in catalogs for field plants. And in uh, breeding for gardens and field stuff, they might look at 10 or 15 traits. In tomatoes, for example, they're looking at probably at least 50, maybe 100 traits. And the breeding process involved is very, very intense. And the result is that the seeds cost as much as a dollar apiece. So when you're talking about thousands and thousands of seeds to put plants in your greenhouse at a dollar a piece and you do three crops a year, that adds up to some serious money. And uh, when I was taking agriculture at, at uh, university, they told me I can't do what I did, but because of the cost, I decided to try it. And because these plants are, the breeding process is so refined, you can actually save the seed and get identical out of a hybrid plant, you can get it breeding true in the future. And that seed is, uh, that's my most profitable activity that I do because I can, in a couple of hours of work, save maybe three or 4,000 seeds. And uh, I wish that every activity I did was that profitable. But so far with the varieties that I've tried, and I've tried probably a half a dozen varieties, I've had a pretty good, pretty good success at getting uh, plants that, that I can't tell the difference between the parent and the child. So, when... No, no. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, by the way, about hybridization. People often think that hybridized is some kind of freak thing, and it's not. It's just taking two controlled parent lines and crossing them. And um, that's happening in nature every day, okay? It's just, that, it's just that when they do it for, for crops, they decide who the parents are going to be. We didn't have that privilege, right? Um, deciding who our parents were going to be. But in the, in the breeding labs, they decide who the parents are. are. And, uh, and that's, all that, that's all that hybrid is. Genetically modified different, but hybrids are not anything to be afraid of intrinsically. So the three most important factors in propagation, number one is media. Does anybody have a suggestion what the number two most important thing in propagation is? Media. So it follows, what do you think the third most important thing is? Media. I can't, I have, I have had more trouble propagating as in germinating seeds and getting successful plants 
than I have in any other aspect of organic agriculture. And, uh, and, the, and the key for me, now the reality is, is that factoring out media, then yes, water, temperature, and media are the three most important uh, factors. But I can't overstress the fact that, that the right media for germinating seeds consistently is really important. Yes. Yes, uh, the question was, can we add a fourth thing called um, sunlight? And there's probably a number of factors. We're in Arizona. Sunlight's not in short supply, generally speaking. So light is, and, and actually with, with, uh, with propagating, the seedlings actually don't have a very high light requirement. But they have to have a light temperature ratio that's in balance. You get the temperature too warm and the light too low, and you're getting a long spindly, uh, very low solid content uh, plant. So, so um, there is, and we have to shade, shade, shade in our propagating. It's, it's, um, uh, we have too much light where we are. So what makes a good medium? Now I'm going to, I'm going to be addressing that with some of my stuff here, but um, um, I want to highlight from a philosophical perspective the air-water ratio, and that's where I was, where I was uh, talking earlier that we're going to get to that. And number two is nutrients. Number three is EC. You know what the EC is? That's electrical conductivity. That's the that's the measure of how many uh, how many Salts. Now, when you think salt, you think table salt. No. Salts are soluble um, ionic dissociated chemicals. Okay? And yes, they're chemicals, even though they're organic um, substances that we're using. And, and we need to be free from pathogens. Now, we used to say, I used to say, sterile media. No, I don't like sterile media. I want a media that's free of pathogens, and I prefer it by having a media that is that has a lot of biological activity, so that um, that the pathogens will be suppressed. Um, now, this is where this is where we get to that whole thing I was talking about. When you make your, if you're going to make beds and you're going to make your own media of any kind, the um, um, this part right here, you get way over to the right, that's your colloidal sized particles. Clay is what we would call it in a mineral soil. Um, organic, the humus fraction will also be colloidal. And uh, um, what makes for a nice loam is the fact that, well, I'll stop that sentence and go back one step. The difference between a miserable clay and a nice clay loam or sandy loam or just straight loam, whatever kind of nice soil you like in the garden, when you're talking about native mineral soils, is the ratio of those particle sizes. That's the only difference. Okay? It isn't, it isn't anything else than the ratio of the particle sizes. The more the more you've got a big size, the more you have very little water holding. You've got that sandy soil that has lots of air but not much water holding. You go to the other side and you have that nasty clay thing. 
uh, if it's too pure, and uh, you like in the middle. And so you can get that by blending sand with colloidal particles. And that's why I put the sand in the, in our, when I put the organic matter in the raised beds, because my, my thinking has been, and I think it's right, we have problems at the beginning, but then after time, as the organic matter breaks down to its more humus particle size, then the sand tends to keep that balance so that you don't get shifted too much that way. It, it tends to keep it more um, with some better physical properties. So um, this part here, I've, I've taken a large soil particle, like a sand, and uh, in nature they are always organized in nice patterns like that, all the little particles in rows and columns. Okay, But you can see... Just for illustration purposes, you can see the ratio there between the solid particle and the air. Okay? Now, then you look at a small, smaller particle, and you can see there's still a lot of air there, but the air spaces are much smaller. Now, this is uh, Soils 101, and you probably already know all of this stuff. Water adheres to those particles on the basis of surface tension of water and, and um, adsorption properties of the particle. But particularly the, the, um, the uh, surface tension of water. Which means, and this is a very important thing, the layer of water on the surface of a large particle is the same thickness of film as it is on a small particle. Which means that when you get a large particle and you get it wet, there's still air spaces in there. Now you put the small particle and that same thickness of water has essentially filled all the air spaces. And you lose oxygen to the roots. And... Um, before I get out of that, I'm going to, I'm going to just take a, a minute here and um, demonstrate, if I can, a little bit what we have, what we have done was we grow probably um, you know, we're a I consider us a small farm, but we propagate probably anywhere from 400 to 600 of these trays uh, a week of, of plants. So when you're doing that, going back to my philosophy of fail fast and fail often, um, we've had many years to fail fast and fail often. And you hope that someday you'll stop failing, right? But, um, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of things to new to fail at. We, we use, um, these things are used, they tend to stick together. There's different kinds of trays that we grow in, and I'm going to just interject this part in here because I'm going to be 
using these trays, and somebody's going to ask me what's the difference between the trays. This is a Dillon DI-72 tray, for anybody who hasn't seen it before. Um, Dillon is one of the relatively few manufacturers of, um, of an injection-molded tray. In contrast with, with other manufacturers, there are lots and lots and lots of various kinds of, of, um, of trays, and we put them in, in these um, containers to keep them from breaking. This is called a liner. Um, this is very floppy, but it works great if you put it in, in what I call a carrier. Um, and uh, this is a 72 count also. Yeah, we, because we, we have, what these are generally used for is by nurseries who raise these things and then they ship them out to, to your Walmart and Home Depot and garden centers and whoever else buys them. And, um, and they're typically single use. Because we internally recycle them, <clears throat> we try to do as many as we can with the injection molded tray. More on that in a minute. So this is a 72-count tray, this is a 72-count tray, and this is a 72-count tray. This tray here is probably seven or eight years old. And uh, my wife says it might be 10. Yes, we did start buying them probably 10 or 12 years ago. Um, but but um, I don't know exactly how old this particular one is, but it looks about the same as the day I bought it. And these injection molded trays cost probably about five or six dollars each, as opposed to this one here that you're looking at, maybe 50 cents. So that's, that's why these only work if they are internally recycled. There are features about these particular trays that I don't like. Um, their durability is not one of them. Um, but I'd like to compare here, because this has to do with air water holding. Let me set these off to the side for a minute. If you look here at this tray, and you look here at this tray, you see that there's a difference in depth. Okay, can everybody see that? Okay, if I hold it up you can see that. Not huge, but it's enough to be significant. The capillary action of water, and this one here I think is probably even a little bit more pronounced. Okay, the capillary action of water makes it so that the water is going to naturally tend to move up into a tray. And consequently, the capillary action of water also resists gravity. So these trays don't drain as well. And that's a factor that's really important when you're, when you're propagating. It's nice to have a tray that has more depth because the drainage as the water, you know, you water it and gravity pulls that water through. And uh, as the water goes through, it pulls the oxygen back in behind it. And so you tend to get better aeration when you have a deeper tray. This one, which is an inch and five-eighths deep, is um, just not quite good enough for that. So as a result of that, we, we have had to, we have had to um, compensate by making a very, 
very porous mix. And um, we take, um, we take, what we have been doing over the years is um, we've been using, which you're welcome later to look at if you have, if there's any opportunity at the end. Um, we use a substance called um, coconut coir, C-O-I-R. Uh, it, it has different, different terminologies. Coco peat, uh, we generally refer to it as. Um, but it's, it's coconut shells, typically from Sri Lanka, uh, some from Mexico, but mostly from uh, Sri Lanka. And, uh, and they grind it up and, and make a, a, um, a fairly porous material out of it. And, uh, and we use, it, it's not as, it's not as, being an organic material, natural material, it's not as uniform as, as some people might like. And we usually put in um, at least, which sounds crazy, to probably most people, but we use at least two parts of perlite for one part of coca fiber, which is a very, very porous mix. And I'll just, um, um, now I don't do this for, our, for all of our transplants, but um, and then this other one is perlite. Okay, perlite, does anybody know what perlite's made out of? They take, um, they take a volcanic rock and they put it in the oven and it pops like popcorn. The reality is, this rock that makes this is jet black. But when it pops, it turns white, like popcorn. So, very, very, very light. They actually use it in construction. They blend it into... Um, and the cement to reduce the weight of, of uh, concrete. And uh, in, in, um, for most of our transplants, we would put in um, probably, coconut? what's that? More yes, more coconut here. We, may, we would probably put in probably closer to something like one to one or maybe um, something like um, one and a half to one. Um, and then what we end up with, if we can, well, I'm meaning like we would end up with three, three cocoa core, for example, to two, um, to two perlite. So um, trial and error is, is very, Trial and success, sorry. Trial and success. Just remind yourself of that. Is, um, is necessary. And what I've found is that, is that um, I'll go out there and I'll make, I'll make a half a dozen trays and I'll try different, different compositions. Plant seeds in, same time, and grow them and see what results I get. Because um, we've had a lot of really intractable problems that um, oops intractable problems 
that just don't go away. And so then you just start trying different things and seeing what works. So you see there's a, a very high uh, amount of perlite in that. And, um, and so I said this would probably be the most um, or the least amount of perlite ratio, most cocoa, that we would do. This one here is three to two. This is three to two. Um, for us, now again, I'm, I explained at the beginning the, the fact of the tray that we're using requires, um, requires a higher porosity or higher air um, ratio. Uh, the other thing is, is that we use ebb and flood tables. And that's probably not something that very many people have. And there's a reason for that I won't go into. But um, um, when you have an ebb and flood table, the water comes and floods the table and then drains away. So you get total saturation. Of, of that product as opposed to watering it overhead. Um, very, very nice for automation, very nice for labor savings, but uh, requires that you have a pretty porous uh, mix uh, in order for that to happen. Now, in this, in this um, um, I'll just point at this point, uh, I'll just add this, this um, little issue of fertility, we use, um, I hope nobody here is allergic to peanuts. Anybody allergic to peanuts? Okay, just let you know there's peanuts here. Um, we, get, we get peanut meal uh, for our operation, and uh, we're looking at switching to sunflower meal because I am concerned about the fact that there are people who are allergic to peanuts and uh, don't want to have an, a liability issue from that. But peanut meal is a, is a, uh, uh, a nice material to use for, for fertility and veganic operations because there's no genetic modification involved and uh, it's about 7% nitrogen. And um, we would put... We would put in um, in our propagating or growing or the, for the seedling. I would put um, just one ounce. I have that up there in a future thing. One ounce in a cubic foot. And if I recall, there's 16 quarts in a cubic foot. But um, <clears throat> that's going to probably be about going to probably be close to um, at least two and a half of of these in a cubic foot, and um, and that nutrient charge is not too much for for uh, causing problems, which I'll get to in a minute, um, but, but it's enough to provide a um, material to work, nutrition for the plant to work with uh, until it gets to a larger stage. And uh, we might put a little dolomite lime in there too, like a, the equivalent of a tablespoon for that. So um, that's how we... How we um, have been making our <clears throat> our medium. 
a lot of porosity, so that you get a high air water ratio. The problem that you get if you go with too much perlite, too high of, of uh, porosity, if I can say that, is that you have to have a pretty well-established root structure before you take it out of the cell, because otherwise it'll just fall apart on you, and that, uh, and that creates problems with your transplanting. So what we've been, what we've been changing and doing now <clears throat> is um, we've been composting our... Um, this, is, this is composted pecan shell, and we're... we're um, we're going to be selling this product, which I'm not advocating that I'd be selling it to you, but I'm saying we're going to be selling this product because uh, a lot of people, uh, one of the interesting demographic changes that is taking place, my generation, the baby boom generation, 1% vegetarians nationally. Gen Xers, 4%. So the, uh, the children of the early baby boomers the Gen X, 400% you know, higher vegetarianism. You know what it is with millennials? 11% vegetarian. Faithful vegetarian, they call themselves. Now, I don't know what you define a faithful vegetarian, but, but um, millennials, millennials are becoming a, a bigger force in our demographics in this country. And they are increasingly, we're reaching more of a critical mass of interest in, in uh, veganism and vegetarianism, particularly veganism. And um, um, there's a lot of, there's, it's hard to find, it's hard to find, um, it's hard to find potting soil that is entirely plant-based. And so this product here, <clears throat> and I'm going to put some beside it here. Um, that is that is um, composted, and what we've done, in case anybody is interested in it, um, you can find peanut meal um, online. But what I did here, we buy. We buy uh, broken beans from, they, they grow a lot of beans in our area. They buy broken beans and um, we take, and I did this in the blender. Because we happen to have a hammer mill, I can do it on a large scale. But um, you can do the same thing as with a peanut meal, but this has got about half the protein or nitrogen level as, as peanuts. And so, so um, this is, Blended beans, about 4% nitrogen, 3.5 to 4. And that works well as a fertilizer. And you can, you can add it. I'm, just, I'm not going to mix it in here for time reasons. But um, um, you can add. You have to add more of it because there's less nitrogen. But you can put that in as an additive in making your own... Um, your own product, and this one here is what we actually what we actually grow our seedlings in now. We've gone through some extensive testing, and uh, I've switched over so that we're not using the coconut core anymore, and we're using just our composted pecan shell, and then we blend in 
um, some regular sphagnum moss um, to do the to make to make it a little bit more compressible and um, and to hold it together so it doesn't fall out of these big holes that are bottom of the of the of the tray. This, no, this is, this is um, I think it's navy beans, actually. Yeah. These are myacobas, the white ones? Okay, myacoba beans. I don't know how many of you know myacoba beans. They're something from the desert southwest. And um, they're, they're not in this. Okay, this one here was just the white ones. Um, then, then I also have a, um, for nutrition, we have used this extensively. This is actually a hydrolyzed non-GMO soy. Um, it's certified organic. This here is 13 to 14% nitrogen, very, very high nitrogen, and it's completely water-soluble. It's like skim milk powder. You just pour it in water, and in a few minutes, you don't even have to stir it if you don't want to. Just leave it there for a little bit, and you come back, and it's completely dissolved in the water. And... Um, we use this at the rate of, of uh, for a foliar of about three ounces and three gallons, about an ounce a gallon, and uh, we do a we do a drench with that, and uh, it's it's reasonably expensive, but it, it works well as a as a, a fertilizer supplement. So, um, and then I'll um, I think that. Some other people are going to be covering the nuts and bolts of propagating, so I don't want to be uh, too extensive on that, except that our experience has been, like I said, that you need a fairly porous mix or can if you're doing it organically in order to, uh, in order to get... How are we for time? Okay. All right. Um, I want to highlight here on a different note the um, germination. The, this is from Johnny's catalog, and I used four different plants there. You notice that the optimum germination is about what temperature? Yeah, it's, uh, it's between 85 and 90 degrees, about 30 degrees Celsius, okay? And you notice beets, which are a cool season crop, you can get reasonable germination as cool as 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but your, your peak, where you're going to get close to 100%, is up in the mid-80s. Okay, I'm going to show you the next one. This is cucumbers and peppers. Got those pictures reversed. Those ones there we recognize as warm crops. Don't think of cabbage and beets as warm crops. Look what they are optimal germination, uh, germination, 86 degrees. The fact is, is that there's, there are very few seeds that don't do well germinating at, at 80 degrees, uh, 85 degrees. Um, lettuce is one of them. But most plants germinate remarkably better at, um, at that 80 85 degree range and so getting a consistent temperature at that, at that rate can be very very important for uh, successful germination and uh, one of the things that, 
that uh, people have trouble with is if you put a seed, if you fill a, if you fill a tray with, um, with this medium and... Um, can't find what I did with myself, so I'll leave it there. If you fill this tray and you put the seed on, what do you do with it next? And uh, there's a lot of different things. People cover it with the same material, etc. We have had, I, I did this one here. You can see how I used the same, this, this was a sunshine germination mix, certified organic, but it's still a, a sunshine mix that is designed for germinating seedlings. And I covered the seeds with the same material, and look what happens. Um, they just, you know, when the plant comes up, it just basically pokes the pile up. Um, we have had the very best results with a thin layer of vermiculite. And vermiculite is also a popped uh, volcanic rock. And um, the one thing that's unique about vermiculite is its intense holding, water holding capacity. It holds several times its weight of water. And the nice thing about that is it doesn't take very much of it on top of the seed because it keeps moisture there, it tends to keep the seed from drying out and still provides lots of air in there for the germinating seedling. Okay, um, this is the last thing that I'll do on the, on the um, uh, germination part. That little root that's coming out, it's called a radical and it's extremely sensitive and the problem is, is there's only one of them that comes out of a seed. So if that little root, a radical, as it comes out, if it gets damaged, particularly that little tiny growing point, it's done. So it's sensitive to particularly to salt damage and other things too. So if you put too much fertilizer in your germinating mix, the that those salts there will damage that growing point on that little root and you get then uh, um, either that kills the plant or the damage allows the uh, opportunistic uh, funguses like Pythium and Phytophthora and so on to uh, move in and kill that and we call that damping off. And there's hardly a gardener out there who hasn't hasn't been, um, who hasn't suffered from damping off. And damping off generally happens because something happens that slowed down the emergence of that and allowed the fungus to get in there, typically overwatering or salts of some type. I see a hand. Here's a little picture I drew of it there. There's the seed and there's the, there's the, little root that comes out, the radical, and you can see the little ions, the little salt ions around there. And believe it or not, this um, uh, cocoa fiber, one of, the, one of its biggest problems that they've had with it is that because Sri Lanka is a, as a little ocean island, they tend to have problems with salt in it. Um, either salt spray off the ocean or just the palms picked up more salt. 
So they, they're supposed to wash it well before they ship it. But being a developing country, uh, that those processes may not be as consistent as we would like. Now, they, because of the huge problem they've had with it, um, they've really improved in the last few years. But initially, we would have to water that ourselves and wash it in order to make sure. And even, even then, as recently as a couple years ago, I've had issues, not more than two years ago, I've had issues with some sensitive seedlings not growing in cocoa that will grow in sphagnum peat um, because of, of, uh, of salt in there, even though the salt is barely measurable. I mean, it's very low levels, but it's enough that what happens is, is that it damages that little root, damages the cells, very, very tender, very tender uh, tissue coming out there in that radical, very rapid growing, and uh, the salt damages it. And when there's tissue damage, these, these funguses like Pythium phytophthora and, and so on, they move in there to, to eat that, that uh, damaged tissue, and then they just move on into the good tissue from there. Yeah, I like growing in cocoa better than peat, just to make my wife wanted me to clarify that. There's a lot of, it has better, better um, drainage, better um, porosity. It's a... Um, it's, um, a nicer, a nicer thing to grow in when I can. But um, we have had some issues with it. And I just want to emphasize that when you get the damage, you have to be careful with that. And especially if you're using organic type fertilizers, they break down, the process of them breaking down essentially releases salts, ammonia and sulfides, etc. And those, those things can damage the emerging root. So you can't put too much fertilizer in the, in, the, um, uh, in the starting mix. So if you have a, a um, um, and these are just guidelines that I've found work for me. But when you are germinating, you want low fertility, but you can't leave it at that low fertility for long because the plant doesn't need much to get started. But as it grows, it does need more fertility. So when you get to the transplant size, we have to be raising the fertility, and when you get to established growth, you can go to high fertility, and the roots are not as sensitive at that point. So, what's that? Oh, that's CF, that's a cubic foot. Okay, so one ounce per cubic foot, two ounces per cubic foot, and three and a half or three to four ounces per cubic foot. There's what we are currently using. Now, finishing the, the uh, so that's the, that's the propagating stage of, of our um, uh, operation. These are the beds, and I'm just going to walk you through really quickly um, the process that we use for transplanting in our uh, succession growing. We start, and I would like to get one of these nice ones that I think uh, Jonathan makes. Um, I tried ordering one before, and uh, uh, from somewhere else, and they didn't have it in stock. So we've just been using a, a, um, a flamethrower. doesn't work as well, but um, just haven't gotten around to ordering a better thing. We go through before, after we've harvested, we go through and flame the surface of the bed. And we do that because um, 
any weed seeds that might be there on the surface. They're the things that are most likely to germinate. And we were able to cut our weeding down probably 80% by, by doing a flaming just before we, we went on with our transplanting. So, yeah. So you'll see that, um, I was going to say that next, and my wife reminded me. You see that we use just a standard irrigation drip tape for our watering. And um, so we pull it off before we, before we, before we uh, do our, our transplanting there. And uh, what's that? This, is, this one is inside, the same process we do inside and outside. And um, we flame it. And that's an up-close picture. You can barely see the, the flame. Uh, just uh, Arizona sunshine overpowering it. Then we use a little, a little Honda, um, a little Honda tiller. We use that one because you can pick it up with one hand, but it also has very slow turning tines, so it doesn't do a lot of, of uh, breaking up of the soil physical properties. Uh, road tilling is not a particularly earth friendly thing, but um, uh, so we don't always do it, but it is, generally speaking, we've found that we have more success doing it than not doing it. And, um, and that's at up close. And um, we try to go deep. And um, then we smooth off the surface of the bed. And uh, we try to keep our tools uh, close. Not always good at that. But um, then we have, this, is, this was a temporary thing that we made. And um, um, it's two two-by-fours that we put dowels that you can buy at uh, Home Depot. Um, and we punch our holes. So that's about five feet long. And um, you can step on that and you can punch a lot of holes, which makes the process go a lot faster. It's a temporary tool that we made four years ago. So one of these days, we would like to make something better. But, um, and we're using, for handles on it, we're using uh, EMT conduit. It's very simple. Uh, we don't have much of a shop. And um, so it's something we threw together. That spacing there is 8 inch. Um, I think that one's 8 inch. It might be a 6 inch. Those are inch and a half, I believe. And then, uh, and then we kind of grind a point on them, uh, well, round the edge there so it goes any easier. And you can see up a little closer, they, um, they don't make a perfect hole, but they work. And it's about three, four inches deep that we punch it. And then we bring out trays. This is lettuce we're putting in there. And lettuce we do at eight by eight, so that's going to be an eight-inch eight inch, uh, spacing on those. And then we have this, this uh, dibbler that we use as a, as a uh, we have this made for us by a machine shop. I don't even want to tell you how much I paid for it, but um, this will last a lifetime. It's all aluminum, and um, this is made to um, match. This is made to match 
this spacing here so you can just set it on there and uh, it pops those plugs out just really fast, a couple seconds and um, I was transplanting something and I did 23, um, 23 in 5 minutes and then I used that and popped them out and I could do 68 in the same 5 minutes so it, it, um, it really speeded up the process so there he is um, popping the plugs out and uh, we've made uh, out of bolts if you don't want to spend $500 to have a, a uh, popper like that made uh, we made that with drilling holes very carefully on, um, on a thinner aluminum sheet and um, I don't like I'd like to use bolts that didn't have threads on them because uh, they tend to grab on the edges of the tray and make it a much rougher operation but it does work and then uh, we how did it say carefully not allow any of the root fibers to be misplaced see he's carefully doing that so we hope that he's doing it right and uh, then water it in when it's finished and put the drip tape back in place and you can see there's uh, another section up there that's getting ready to harvest. Uh, this one here is three. And that's a, that bed there, because of we're converting a uh, section that had been set up for, a, for greenhouse tomato crops, uh, the beds can't be as wide. So I think that's a 42-inch or 40-inch instead of a 48-inch. And this is beets that we transplanted, and uh, I believe that's the that's the uh, the last slide that I have. So, any questions? Are we in time? Okay. Yes. Um, this right here, we used uh, three eighths minus pea gravel, <clears throat> and um, outside. <clears throat> outside we use pecan shell it's a readily available waste product but you can use sawdust uh, in, the, in Arizona where we live uh, sawdust is not in very ready supply <laughs> um, but um, we do have some access to chips but um, pecan shell is more available so we use that it makes a great just uh, helps suppress the weeds and um, helps suppress the weeds and uh, keeps the mud from causing aesthetic and shoe problems. Yes. These ones here. Glad that you asked about that. Um, we've we've done some experimenting with these, and I and we're moving we're moving a um, a part of our production over to these. These are called elipots. Anybody familiar with elipots? Okay. Um, elipots are, are widely used probably, I'm not going to say they have the majority share in the nursery business, but they're certainly very, very widely used. The problem is, is that, that there's, there's only one operation that I know of that makes them certified organic. And um, so we've started experimenting with them and, and uh, 
what they do is they take a, a special kind of paper uh, sleeve and uh, this, this sleeve is coming off of a roll and it goes to a machine where they inject the soil mix into the middle of it and it comes out the other end and they cut it into little pieces and make a, and make a little a plug. Okay? The nice thing about this, if you, look at the, if you look at the way that they sit in there, there's air space around them. So there's really good uh, air around the root. And um, when it comes time to, you can transplant these at much smaller plant sizes. So from our perspective as a commercial operation, when I say every square foot every day, our, <clears throat> our um, let's see if I can find this here really quickly. Those tables are worth a lot of money per square foot. And the shorter time we can have those plants on that table, the, the less that costs us. So we're trying to find ways in which we can, we can get the plants <clears throat> into the field a little smaller because they actually, you don't lose any growing time by putting them in the field a little smaller. As I said before, when we, we have to have a certain size plant in order to have a good tight root mass to hold together when you transplant. With these here, you can transplant them at any time because they are a self-contained plug. And so we get pretty good germination in there. Uh, you know, certainly in excess of 90%, probably a little better than what we do otherwise. And uh, we can transplant them at a younger size and with less labor because popping these out is really fast. And, uh, and then there's less disruption to the root system. There's much less transplant shock, both because the plant is smaller and because you don't disturb the roots when you transplant it. So I brought these along to show they have different sizes. These are the most common size that's used for for vegetable transplants and uh, some things like cucumbers we can't do that that small size so there's a larger um, a larger size that we use so what are the sizes? this is a uh, this is called a 128 and this I believe is a 72 um, they have a they call it I think a 35 millimeter um, and the other is a 42 millimeter I think or something like that I saw a hand yes no by the time you take them out, the roots are already coming out within a couple of days of emergence. They, are, they grow out very rapidly. That, that membrane is so thin, and they've actually created a, it's not a very tight, um, very tight thing, so the roots come out very easily. I think you had a hand up. The, this, which one are you talking about? This one? Oh, these ones here, these are elipots. E-L-L-E-P-O-T-S. E-L-L-E-P-O-T-S. Uh, these ones that are organic, they come from a company called OBC, Earth Pots in Oregon. And uh, we ship them from Oregon down, which isn't my favorite thing to do. Um, they, cost, they cost about, for the smaller size here, the, um, the 128 by, uh, by 47, 47 centimeters deep. This one is 2.2 cents each. So, you know, we have to do the math on how that works out. And I think it's, I think it's cost effective, but we're just, we're, we're on a pilot scale program with it right now in our farm.
OBC, I think it is. And uh, see, I saw another hand. Yes. No. Um, these ones here are are more difficult to to do the seating size. We can do um, we can do um, on when we're seating these. We can um, we can press those down by several different means and and drop the seed in. We can even run it through our needle seeder, which we can't do with this. But we use that that uh, that bolt dibbler that you saw that we made, um, we can press little indentations for the seed uh, using that. And, uh, but you have to get these wet first. They, they, um, they're dry, so you have to, we, we drop, dunk them in a, in a tub before we plant them. No, no, no seeds. Uh, generally, we do one seed. Some, some limited varieties, we do two seeds, but generally one seed. Seeds, seeds are, a, are a huge expense for us. We spend probably 3000 a month on seeds. And so it's, it's um, overseeding is not a, um, a cost-effective thing for us to do. Yes. Uh, the question was, how do we control our germination temperature for cooler season crops like lettuce and spinach? Well, first off, we don't grow spinach, uh, unfortunately, because we've had a lot of trouble with germination because of, uh, of um, it being too warm in the summertime. And we, we try to grow crops that we can do year-round. And spinach has not been one that's been very amenable to us. We've been thinking about doing it seasonally, but... Uh, we have to deal with efficiency and doing some things now and some things not now just doesn't work as well with our systems. Um, but what we do do is um, we're going to be setting up a germinating chamber that's going to be running at a cooler temperature. Right now we stack them near our evaporative cooler wall and keep the temperature down. It's not ideal, uh, but it does work. So there's a lot of things you can do that may not be ideal. I think every farm probably knows that. Yes. Okay. The question is, what do I think of the germinating pads, the heating pads that you can lay out for bench heating, like I think that's what you're talking about. Um, it depends on where you use them. Um, we tried them in Michigan. We've tried them in our place. And, and um, I've had more problem with them than success because it's pretty easy to overheat um, with them. If the, somebody moves the the little sensor probe or anything like that happens, or if, it's, if they're growing where it's hot, I mean, where the sunshine gets on it. So we've had problems with, with that, so I don't generally use it. We put them, in a, we put them in, a, in a box, big box that has shelves, uh, doors on it, and we maintain the temperature there that way, and we get more consistent results with that. But, you know, you can find out what works for you. Yes? Yes, um, the question was, uh, what is our germinating chamber? We, we were fortunate to find a, a bakery proof box, actually a couple of bakery proof boxes. They're about four feet wide and a couple feet deep and probably seven feet tall. And uh, they, were, 
they were basically being abandoned somewhere. So we picked up the two of them and put shelves on the inside. And so they're already insulated. So that's really, really nice. But um, um, you, can, you can make something, you can frame something up that's, that you can use a refrigerator, an abandoned refrigerator. You can use a, you can just stack the trays up and put a, a, a pallet cover over, which is like a big garbage bag over it and, and uh, have it in a room temperature. You know, there's a lot of things that work, but the ideal thing is when you can actually have temperature, uh, temperature control. That's really nice. Yeah, uh, I have not found any seeds that won't germinate in the dark. Lettuce prefers light, but uh, it is a, it will, it will uh, germinate. Yes. You know, um, I bought a little soil blocker, and um, I think I actually bought two or three of them, and they're still sitting somewhere um, unused. The the um, the soil blocker, um, they use them extensively in Europe. Um, I think they developed them in the Netherlands or somewhere. And, um, and they've had good success with them. They're moving away from that in, in Europe, from what I can tell. So I have very little experience with it. I have no problem with it. We didn't, the little bit, we did tinker with it a bit, and I had problems getting something that would hold together. And in our operation, because of the number of transplants we're doing, the, a, a really important thing to me is efficiency. We've got to have, you know, labor's our number one expense. And so I've got to have something that gives me consistent results with as little labor as possible. So we've been using this. But I can't tell you whether it's better than or not as good as. You know, we, we tinkered with it and didn't like our initial results, but we didn't stick with it long enough to get to find out how it would work. Yeah, yeah, my wife is reminding me we wanted to go on to our next failure. Okay, yes. Yeah, and that I've heard is a pretty consistent problem. So I've heard that you can make it work great, but I figured out right away that it was going to take some, some trial and error and... Um, I didn't have the time or the motivation to, to do that because I wasn't sure that it was going to be worth it for our operation. Yes, I think you had a question. Is how we control the temperature in the germinating chamber. The answer to that is because it's a fairly large um, box, you know, four feet by two feet by, you know, six feet or so inside, um, at the bottom... We just have a little space heater, 1,500-watt space heater. And then we bought from Granger a, a digital thermostat that uh, we mount on the outside. It has a remote probe that we put inside, and we set the temperatures, a little dial on it, and we set the temperature where we want it. And, um, and then the fan just comes on and off. Uh, that particular thermostat from Granger has a 15-amp capacity, so I don't have to make anything fancy in terms of relays. I just wired a plug to it, a receptacle, and, um, and it works pretty well. You have to watch out because it can tend to dry your, your trays inside, so you have to watch them. Sometimes you have to water them to keep them wet. Yes? You mentioned at the beginning about efficiency. You're asking my kind of questions. The question is, um, what, 
tools, whether they're a significant investment or not, that you can use to improve the efficiency of the process and make your work easier. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to make a confession here that our most significant investment is in human labor. Um, that is the tool that costs us the most. And unfortunately, um, we're having to pay more and more for labor uh, because we like to give people living wages and more and more of our people are making 30000 a year or more. And that is, that is putting us in a position where we have, we have determined our priority to be to, to come up with more of these kind of things that you're talking about, the tools that, that cut our labor. We currently um, do most stuff by hand. We have a needle seeder for seeding, which is, uh, we get it from Blackmore. Um, they're, they're ridiculously expensive for what you get, but they can seed pretty quickly. Um, we, we do use a rototiller, um, but most of our processes are such that they lend themselves very easily to hand labor without actually being very hard. We have, uh, in fact, we find we have a lot of young people that really enjoy the work uh, because it's fairly social and they don't have to do something for very long at a time. Most, they don't generally do any job for more than an hour or two before they go do something different. And, um, and so that keeps some of these issues from becoming serious. But I have, I have things in my mental blueprint that I want to make to automate the processes. I just need time to flesh that out and money to spend to make it. Yes? Question is, have we tried vacuum tray seeders? No, the reason is, is that we use a needle seeder, which is much faster than a vacuum seeder, um, but has its limitations. So because we had that from a different project we had done before, um, we used to do microgreens, and so we got the, vac the needle seeder, which is a type of vacuum seeder, uh, to, to be able to seed microgreen trays faster. Um, but that didn't work out very well, so I had a machine shop make something that, that uh, I can seed a tray of microgreens in about two and a half seconds. And uh, so that works really, really well. Unfortunately, that is for microgreens and not for beets or you know, whatever else we're doing for, for these kind of crops. So um, I've heard good reports of the vacuum seeders because they're relatively inexpensive. Any other questions? Yes. You know, um, the question is what scale do we use? We use a skid steer to mix the, the stuff, although up until fairly recently, we, we buy the, the cocoa in, in uh, bulk totes, the 60 cubic foot bulk tote, and uh, we had a guy mixing it with a shovel and a pile on a cement pad, and uh, that would usually take about two hours, so we, we switched to doing it with a, with a, um, a skid steer, and uh, I can't tell you what his, he figured it out himself, and I don't know what, you know, how he, how he measures stuff, but it seems to work. So, yeah, we use the same ratios, but I don't know, you know, whether he calls it one bucket load or, or you know, what he's, what he's done for that. I'm sorry, I can't tell you that. Okay, imagine we're getting, yeah, okay, we've, we've, uh, Gone four minutes over. Sorry, I wasn't keeping track of the time. 
All right. Uh, thank you for, for um, your questions and for sitting for so long. And uh, good luck in your and blessings on your gardening. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.